All right, good morning. <clears throat> Very nice to be back with everyone, be here. It was really awesome to get to have music again. So thank you again for the music team and to Mike for using your lungs and your, your lung capacity to bless us this morning. Um, definitely huge. And I know Eden really liked it too. So that's really, really what matters. Definitely appreciate it. So we are again in the book of Nehemiah. Last week, Mike introduced us to the book of Nehemiah. And he kind of pointed out how the book begins rather abruptly, because we finished the book of Ezra and went right into the book of Nehemiah, and the beginning of the book just has an abrupt beginning to it. And that's because Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one unit, not two separate books. So there's not really a lot of transition from one story into the next, uh, but it does make a little bit more sense if you know that Nehemiah is picking right where, picking up right where Ezra left off. And in the book of Nehemiah, unlike in the book of Ezra, we actually get to meet the namesake of the book right away, because in Ezra, we weren't introduced to the person of Ezra until halfway through the book. But the person of Nehemiah was introduced to us right off the bat in chapter one. And who remembers what Nehemiah's job was. What was his job? Cupbearer, yeah. So he's, he's a cupbearer. He brings wine to the king of the Persian Empire, and his job is kind of there to provide um, a, a buffer between anyone who might try to assassinate the king uh, and the king. So he drinks the wine, makes sure it's not poisoned, and then as long as it's not, you know, the king is able to enjoy it. And because he's there, there's really not much risk of anyone trying to poison it because it's not going to work because there's a cupbearer. So it's a really great job. It's a cush job, as Mike put it. Uh, it's a pretty nice position to have. Cush, it is. Yes, not the place cush. It's, it's cushy. It's a cushy job. Remember, we're still in the period of Jewish exile, and they're currently under the rule of the Persian Empire, but they have been migrating back. They've been allowed to start migrating back to Jerusalem over a couple of generations now. But the Persian king, who is now Artaxerxes at this point, we've gone through several kings throughout the exile uh, story. Artaxerxes is the king. He's the big guy in charge. He's the political leader, the military leader of this huge, vast empire, extremely powerful. And we've read about several Jewish characters who are placed into positions of, of prominence and power within the Persian Empire. We had Daniel, uh, who actually witnessed the empire change hands because it was originally Babylon. He saw the changeover from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. And then we had Ezra, and then Esther, and now Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jewish man, but he's serving in the Persian Empire. He's in exile. But it's a cushy position, and he's really got it made as far as his his personal day-to-day lifestyle. But he is Jewish, and even though he grew up in Babylon, he remained connected to his Jewish roots and to his people as God's chosen people. He is clearly still very connected to that. There are people who've been scattered as a consequence for their rebellion against God, but out of whom God has spared a remnant. He hasn't destroyed them completely. There's a remnant that's now beginning to literally pick up the pieces, the shattered pieces of their lives uh, in Jerusalem, in Judah, putting themselves back together. 
And we see where Nehemiah's heart really is when he gets the news in chapter 1. He, he receives this report that the city has been burned and the, the walls are destroyed, the gates are torn down. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he cries out to God. You see, he's really torn up about it. Mike read through the prayer of Nehemiah, his first prayer uh, in, in the book last week. He noted that there's quite a few of these prayers, quite a few different prayers uh, throughout the book to be looking for. So remember to be on the lookout for those. We read through the first one last week, and today we'll encounter the second one. It's a little bit different. But just one thing I want to point out about the first prayer is how it ended, because it really gives kind of a subtle transition into the next chapter. So Nehemiah chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, verse 11. This is the very end of Nehemiah's prayer. It says, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. So his prayer ends with this specific and personal petition to God. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. But that, that kind of might seem a little bit vague. So I just want to clarify a couple things about this. So first of all, who is the servant that Nehemiah is referring to? Give your servant success. Himself. He's referring to himself in the third person, which is just kind of weird because we don't really generally do that. And whether it's in prayer or in conversation, we don't refer, I don't say, Father, give this man, give your servant success. That's just not how we generally talk. But it was pretty common, in, especially in prayers. And Nehemiah is writing in the first person, but then praying in the third person. And he's identifying himself as God's servant. And then what is he asking for? There's two things that he asks for. The first is just success in general. He says, please, you know, give your servant success. Give me success. And the second is a little bit more specific, and it specifies how Nehemiah is going to be successful. It's what needs to happen in order for Nehemiah to be successful. Grant him compassion in the presence of this man. So Nehemiah is asking for compassion or mercy or favor. The Hebrew word here comes from the root word that means womb. <laughs> and it's, it's like he's saying, grant me wombness. <laughs> it's like the most literal way to say it. Uh, but it conveys that sensation of, of being loved and, and embraced and feeling safe, like the ultimate loving embrace of, of a mother's womb. That's kind of just where the concept comes from. And he's asking for God to give him this, the sense of security and love and and. Uh, safety in the presence of this man. So who's this man? Another vague. The king. Yeah, this man is the king. So, and it's not really clear why he referred to Artaxerxes as this man, as opposed to, you know, the king or some other title. But it is clear that Nehemiah is recognizing here that God is ultimately the one who has authority and the power to grant him success in this situation. He's asking God to grant him success and to, for God to grant him favor in the sight of the king. Because even the most powerful man in the world 
arguably the most powerful man in the world at the time was Artaxerxes. He's still subject to God's sovereignty. That said, this prayer also does acknowledge the fact that Artaxerxes is a very powerful man and could have Nehemiah fed to lions or thrown in a furnace uh, you know, just at the drop of a hat. Because approaching the king is such risky business is why Nehemiah is asking God for protection. So he's going into a scary situation, and this prayer kind of alludes to that. So I want you to have, have that in the back of your head as we enter into chapter 2. It's not just his own life at stake either. So remember, the whole reason Nehemiah is upset and wants to approach the king is because he's heard the news of Jerusalem's destruction. And if he's not successful in talking to the king, then it's his people and their city, the well-being of the whole remnant of the Jews is what's at stake here. It's not just his own life. So that all sets us up for chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah is going to discuss the situation with Artaxerxes, but he has all that going on in his head, and he knows it's going to be risky to bring up a personal matter to the king. But he's trusting in God's sovereignty rather than being controlled or paralyzed by fear. And it was, it was scary, and later on he'll admit he was terrified. But he's not being paralyzed but by the fear of what a man can do but he's also not going to be stupid about it either. So there's a balance there. And that's kind of one of the main focuses, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me about this passage. You'll find that Nehemiah is very careful and calculated in his approach. So he acts fearlessly, but not foolishly. He shows wisdom and discretion. So there's an important distinction and, and a balance there that you'll find in, in chapter 2. So let's read how this plays out starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 2. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So first of all, during the month of Nisan, it's interesting that it points that out. What does that mean? Uh, we don't have a month of, of Nisan. In our Gregorian calendar, it would be somewhere between March and April, so where, where Nisan falls kind of overlaps March and April. And chapter 1, if you remember, began in the month of Kislev, which would be our November, December. So it's been four months. Four months have passed since Nehemiah originally got this, the report of what happened in Jerusalem. So we're not told exactly why he waited that long to talk to the king, but what it does make clear is that Nehemiah didn't immediately go run to the king. He didn't act in haste or rashly, and I think it's pretty safe to guess that Nehemiah was praying during those four months. Not just that one prayer that we have recorded in, in chapter one, but I would think that he was praying very frequently and very continuously throughout those four months. As we'll see soon, you, prayer was a habitual part of Nehemiah's life. So even though we're not told what he did during those four months, I'm pretty comfortable assuming he had quite a few chats with God during that time. But now there's an opportunity. The king is drinking wine, and it's Nehemiah's job to bring it to him. So naturally, he's going to be there. Just practically speaking, that means he's going to get some face time with Artaxerxes. We also know from some of the other stories that Artaxerxes really liked his wine, probably a little bit too much for his own good. But this would be logically, given his track record, a good time to ask him a favor. He's going to be 
in a good mood and probably a little bit more persuadable after having a few goblets of the finest wine in the kingdom. So it's an opening. It's an opportunity that Nehemiah is about to take. Let's keep reading. I'm, gonna, I'm actually just going to go ahead and start over, read a little bit further. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Right, so Nehemiah says that he's never been sad in the king's presence before. And that makes sense. Generally, it's not a good idea to make the king sad. And you know how one person's mood, whether it's happy or sad, can really affect the whole room and the mood of everyone else in the room. And you want the king to be in a good mood, right? So generally, you would want everyone to be in the same room as the king to be in a good mood. It's not a good idea, a good idea to be that one guy in the room who's the wet blanket and is going to bring the mood down. Probably not going to turn out well for you. The king's going to, at best, just send you away. At worst, PG Alliance, right? So you don't want to be the sad guy in the room when, with the king. So it makes sense that when he says, I'd never been sad in the presence of the king before, that that was unusual behavior. And the king notices it right away. And maybe Nehemiah wasn't even aware of how his internal turmoil was, was being presented on his face. But the king notices it. And he takes interest. He notices Nehemiah's sadness. And he takes interest, which I think is just a, it's pretty cool. He doesn't say, Go away, Nehemiah, you're bumming me out. Get out of here. He says, oh, man, I can see you're not physically ill. Physically, you're fine. But something's bothering you. Your heart is sad. What's, what's weighing on your heart, Nehemiah? And for all the king's faults, he's certainly not perfect. Um, but he does have a few redeeming qualities in the few stories that we have of him. And I think showing a genuine interest in other people's problems is one of them. And in fact, that's really a mark of good leadership in general, is not being invested just in yourself, but in other people's lives and in knowing them and knowing them well enough to know what, when something is wrong and, and not ignoring it, but learning more so that you can figure out a solution and, and working towards that solution. That being said, <laughs> Nehemiah is still terrified because he's still not sure what's going to come next when he realizes the king can see the sadness plainly on his face. But there's no turning back at this point. He, there's really no turning back. It's obvious that he's sad, and the king asked him point blank what's going on. So he, he has to give an answer to the king, and he gets right to the point after a good, you know, long live the king, or you know, may the king live forever. Uh, and I kind of almost read that. It's just like, okay, don't be mad. You know, this is, I'm going to explain, but live forever. <laughs> and then I love how he words this in verse 3. Why should I not be sad? when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's like he's saying, I have no choice but to be sad. How could I not be sad? And then notice, too, that he says, the city where my ancestors are buried, he doesn't say Jerusalem, he doesn't say, oh, my people, the Jewish people. 
I think, again, this points to Nehemiah's wisdom and discretion in the, the calculated way he words this. It's not that he's ashamed to admit it, uh, that he's a Jew and wants to go to Jerusalem. He's going to have to reveal that shortly, but he's doing it kind of strategically. He's revealing just enough detail as he eases into this conversation just to get the king invested and kind of empathizing with him. Because he doesn't start off with, well, I heard that Jerusalem is in ruins. The king would be like, so what? I don't, you know, I don't care about Jerusalem. But he says, the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. So he puts it in a perspective that the king can actually relate to. The king is a Persian. He's not a Jew. He has no personal interest in Judah or Jerusalem, but he does have ancestors. And he understands the significance of having that connection to your roots. So he's putting it in a way that the king can understand and, and empathize with. So he's, Nehemiah, again, he's not being deceitful in any way or cowardly in the way he words this, he's, but he is showing discretion. And so far, it's so good, it's, it's working. He's got the king's interest. He's at least curious at this point. So then we'll continue reading in chapter 4. The, then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. So the king says, okay, what do you want from me? What's your request? And now this is really the climax of suspense in this conversation, for Nehemiah at least. This is the moment of truth. This is where he has to lay it all out there. This is what he wants. Can you just imagine the stress and the anxiety that Nehemiah was feeling in that moment? Just think about it. Again, his fate, his own fate, and the fate of Jerusalem rests on Nehemiah's next few words when he presents his request to the king. That's a lot of pressure. I really can't even begin to imagine it, honestly. And yet, Nehemiah it also recognizes that with all that pressure, ultimately, the pressure is not truly on him or on the words that he's about to speak or even the king who's really in charge. It's Yahweh, his God, who's in charge. So he immediately turns to God in prayer before he answers the king. Now, unlike the first prayer that we read in chapter 1, we have no idea what the contents of this prayer was. It just says that he prayed to the God of the heavens. We do know the king was waiting for an answer. So logically, it couldn't have really been long, more than a, a few seconds. He, he wouldn't have said, oh, hold that thought, king. I'm just going to go run and pray for a while and, and fast and come back to you. I'll, you know, I'll be back in an hour I'll, and let you know. No, he's, he's been praying about this for months, four months. But he still prays in that moment as well, in the midst of the climax of the stress of that conversation. I like to call this a popcorn prayer. I don't know why, where I heard that the first time, but it stuck to me. I think you called it a bullet prayer. So you have little uh, euphemisms for the types of prayer that we pray when it's just like a little pop, something like, God, help, or, you know, God, please just give me the words to say. It's not a long, drawn-out, well-thought-out prayer. It's just a little pop, quick prayer to God. And this is the second reference to prayer in Nehemiah. And it's just a, it's a good reminder, first of all, that there's really no one right way to pray. 
We can model certain prayers after the prayer Nehemiah. It's a really well-constructed prayer, and it can really serve as a great framework on which we can hang other, you know, model prayers. Or, you know, the probably the most famous prayer in the Bible is the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus himself said, this is how you should pray. Well, yeah, maybe we should pray like that sometimes and model our prayer uh, after that, the way Jesus taught. There's a lot we can learn from model prayers in the Bible, and there's a, there's a time and a place for long prayer and eloquently worded prayers and well-thought-out prayers. But ultimately, prayer, when you boil it down, is not about following some perfect formula. It's about communicating with God. It's a crucial part of our relationship with God, is prayer. It's how we communicate with Him, and He wants to hear from us, whether it's a long or short prayer, whether it's eloquent or messy, He still wants us to turn to Him, even in moments of stress and, and just this high pressure. It should be Him who we turn to immediately. And if you make prayer a regular, consistent part of your life, then in stressful moments like this, it becomes kind of an instinctual response to talk to God. If you're constantly being reminding yourself that he is there and he wants to hear from you. And with Nehemiah, it demonstrates that prayer isn't just something that he does to check off a list or to put it in his, in his book. Where this is the seed of this great prayer I read. No, he's, he's doing it instinctively as, as a reflex because he believes that God is present and powerful in every situation. Talking to God acknowledges that he is present and powerful right here, right now. And Nehemiah clearly has a well-developed, I call it a prayer reflex. He's praying as a, as a reflex. Jesus, by the way, also had a pretty good prayer reflex. I won't go into that now, but just, you know, by the way, if Nehemiah doesn't convince you, then Jesus maybe can. So I just want to ask, you know, how is your prayer reflex? Do you instinctively just talk to God throughout the day. And if not, I, I encourage you to work that muscle and do it intentionally, intentionally talk to God, even if you have to remind yourself to do it until you do it almost without thinking about it. And then, you know, on the flip side, I have to add, some of us may have the opposite problem. I find myself, I tend to shoot out those popcorn prayers throughout the day, but then I don't spend much time in thoughtful, intentional prayer for extended periods of time. And again, there's a time and a place for both, and I don't think anyone has ever on their deathbed said, man, I really just wish I prayed less. So I think with, whether it's one or the other, we should be exercising those, those muscles. Did you want to say something? Okay. All right, so yeah, it's an area where I think all of us have room for growth in, in one or, or both uh, of uh, ends of that spectrum. So let's get back to the story that said, yeah, pops in that popcorn prayer, and then he makes this request, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. So then in verse 6, we'll see the king's response. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. So notice the king's response. Nehemiah's given his request, but there's still quite a bit of suspense there because the king hasn't said yes or no yet. But then when he does give his response, he doesn't say yes right away. He responds with a question. But he also didn't say no, and he doesn't say 
you're crazy, you're fired off with your head, get out of here. So that's good news. It's not a bad response, but it is a question. So I'm sure there's some measure of relief when Nehemiah hears this response. Okay, when do you want to go? Uh, or how long will it take and when will you return? But it does seem in the way that the king worded this question, like the king wants some kind of assurance that Nehemiah does plan on coming back. So Nehemiah gave a, a definite time, and it pleased the king to send him. And again, this just indicates a wise response from Nehemiah, giving the king a definite time for the leave, even if it was a several-year period of time. It gave some assurance as to his loyalty and his intentions to return uh, and to continue serving the king after this, this mission. And we don't know how long he actually asked for here. The, the length of the leave he originally requested. Later on at the end of the book, he does return, and it's 12 years later that he returns. It's very likely that his time away was extended, that he didn't actually ask for 12 years originally. But he could have made short trips back and forth. A lot of scholars believe that was very likely, uh, and he did eventually return. So let's keep reading. Now that the king has agreed to send Nehemiah to Judah, Nehemiah has some more follow-up requests. Verse 7, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The fact that he brings up a home where he will live points out that it's probably a pretty extended period of time. It's not just a month. And the king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. So he's asking for some letters from the king that will give him protection along his journey. And the king grants his request. But notice again how Nehemiah gives God the credit for the king's decision to grant his request. He says his requests were granted because the gracious hand of God was on him. We had almost identical wording a couple times back in Ezra. When Ezra was successful in his endeavors, it was always because of the gracious hand of God. That was one of the major themes in Ezra, and it continues right into Nehemiah. Gracious hand of God. Let's keep reading. Now we're in verse 9. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. So one thing to, that's just interesting to note here is that Nehemiah did accept the military escort from the king. Whereas if you remember, Ezra did not. He actually made a whole point to not take any military protection with him. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Nehemiah just didn't have as much faith as Ezra did because he went with this military escort? No, not really. It just means that, that God's protection and provision can look different in one person's story compared to another person's story. In the story of Ezra's refusing military protection, it was a really cool story, and it, it showed God's uh, authority and his protection and his uh, reputation as reliable. 
but it's not prescriptive for how every situation should be handled. That could really get pretty silly pretty quickly if you think about it. In both stories here, the point is not to do things exactly the way they did, but to see how God works in different ways in different people's lives to provide for them and to uphold his reputation. And another thing to notice here in verse 10 is just remember those names, Sanballat and Tobiah. This is the first introduction we get to these. There are a couple of villain characters that are going to come up again. So remember those names. And all we're told so far is that they were greatly displeased that someone had come in the interest of pursuing the prosperity of the Israelites. So all we know is they don't like the Jews. They don't want them to do well. And the fact that someone's coming to help them just really ticked them off. Otherwise, the trip was apparently uneventful. They didn't run into any issues. And they arrived safely. And verse 11 picks up after they had arrived. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate, through the serpent's well and a dung gate, which is exactly what you think it is. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, Let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Now, all this description of all the different gates, um, Lord willing, in two weeks, I'll be going through chapter three and, and maybe four and then kind of looking at giving you a map and a visual of, of where all those gates were so you can kind of picture it in your head. I didn't do it for this week, but I, I think in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to show you where all of that was. But for now, just wanted to focus on how Nehemiah conducts this thorough inspection of the city. Just to, if you look at it, it's like he went all around in a circle. I think it is either clockwise or it, it conveys that he, he went through the whole city and took a, a thorough survey of it just to get an idea of what kind of work needed to be done. But notice again how his, his discretion, Nehemiah's discretion. He didn't come in guns blazing saying, let's go, let's go, let's start rebuilding the day he gets there. He came in and he quietly surveyed the whole city inspected everything before telling anyone really who he was or what he was up to, and he did it at night even. He's so sneaky. He literally sneaks around the city at night getting, getting a, the lay of the land. And it's only after he's done all of that recon that he approaches the Jews, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials. And again, it's just a great indication of how he's conducting himself here with wisdom in light of God's sovereignty not in spite of it. He recognizes that God is in control, 
but that he's also an active participant in God's plan. He recognizes himself as an active participant in God's plan. And that's another recurring theme that we'll continue to see throughout the book. You know, even last week, Mike pointed out that Nehemiah, when he heard about the problem in Jerusalem, he prayed not just, God, would you please solve that situation? He prayed that he himself would become part of the solution to the problem. And Nehemiah's understanding of his active participation in God's sovereignty, it's apparent, too, in his, his conversation with the king, right? And, how, and then hear how he approached the, the Jewish leaders once he got to Jerusalem. And we'll see it again come into play later on. But for now, we're going to go ahead and, and read the last couple of verses of chapter 2, which give us kind of a glimpse into the conflict that is ahead. So picking up in verse chapter uh, verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, there they are, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So again, it's Sanbal and Tobiah, and now this third guy, Geshem, who will be presenting opposition to Nehemiah and the rest of the Jews. And Lord willing, we'll get into that more in, in a couple weeks. For this week, I just want to leave you with a quick recap of some of the easy application points that we get from chapter 2. Now remember, and Mike pointed this out last week too, we don't like to go into every narrative just looking for three bullet points because that's just not how the narrative of Scripture always works. You know, I, the, the, this whole book, this whole Bible, is a cohesive story that tells the story of God and His creation and, and the fall of humanity and, and God's redemption through Christ and restoration of humanity to Him. And it's a very cohesive story, and we can see that throughout, the, throughout every narrative. But each little narrative is like a little patch in a bigger patchwork quilt or in a mosaic. And if you zoom in on one thread looking for three bullet points, you might not find it. But in Nehemiah, we happen to have three great bullet points in chapter two in this one little thread. And it's, Nehemiah just happens to be pretty packed with those application points. So I have three happy little bullet points that stood out to me. And this is, I think, probably the most Baptist sentence I've ever written, but here are three things we can learn from chapter two of Nehemiah. <laughs> oh, my thing fell asleep. There we go. Three application points. So first is to trust in God's sovereignty. Second, don't be foolish. And three, pray a lot. <laughs> three happy little bullet points, easy application points. So trust in God's sovereignty, and these really don't need much explanation, but I'm Baptist, so I'm going to explain them anyway. So quick explanation. Trust in God's sovereignty. God is bigger and more powerful than even the most powerful of human men and women, leaders, and families, and people, and, and life in general can be scary. People in life can be scary, and it's okay to admit that, and it's okay to be afraid at times, but we shouldn't let that fear paralyze us or control us or become bigger than we know who God is. 
don't be foolish. Nehemiah is just such a great example of recognizing that balance between knowing God is in control, but also seeing ourselves as active participants and having a certain responsibility that God has in his sovereignty given to us. So just because God's in control doesn't mean we should act rashly or foolishly. We should act with wisdom and discretion. And how do we get that wisdom and discretion? It's by knowing God and by spending time in his word. And then finally, just pray a lot. You know, we, we should make prayer a habit and a lifestyle so that it's our first response to everything. So that we're doing it in the morning, in the evening, and throughout the day. For when we get good news, we praise God. When we get bad news, we turn to God. In pleasant situations, in stressful situations, we should be acknowledging God's presence and his power in our lives every day. So with that said, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Nehemiah and for the powerful and compelling narrative that it is, uh, but as, as well as for the clear application uh, that it has to our lives and just the power that your, your scripture has to speak to us, uh, even through stories of, of people millennia ago. Lord, I pray that in, in reading your word and in, in spending time in scripture and in our fellowship together, that ultimately it all points to you and who you are and, and glorifying you. And I just pray that your presence would be a clear reality in our lives, that we would acknowledge you and that your sovereignty would be where we lean our trust and our faith and our hope. The fact that you're in control is way bigger and you are way more powerful than anything else that presents uh, fear and, and other scary situations in life. So I just pray that you would help us to, to make that a reality in our hearts and our minds uh, as we approach life. And I, I pray for you to show us how you are making us active participants in your plan and in your sovereignty, the responsibilities that you are giving to us and the ways in which you are calling us to work alongside you as your church, your body, your hands and feet on this earth. And Lord, let's not take for granted the great gift that we have of, of prayer, the fact that we can, the, us, the, these peon little human dust creatures can just go to you directly in prayer, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all living things. Let us not take for that, take that for granted, Lord. I thank you for who you are, the gift of your word, and the gift of salvation, which we celebrated this morning. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week.